Petersfield's Shine Radio. Hello and welcome to The Ticket. I'm Laura Shepherd, and this is Petersfield's Shine Radio and The Ticket is where I celebrate everything creative that's going on in the local area. In this show we're going to hear about a local film festival. We're also going to talk to the producer of the film The Great Escaper. But first let's hear from Lottie Walker who I spoke to who is bringing a one-woman show to the Phoenix Theatre in Borden and is from the Blue Fire Theatre Company. So the show is called Chopped Liver and Unions, and, and it's a true story. I know, I know, it's great. It's actually, the title is, is a throwback to Arnold Wesker's Chicken Soup with Barley, because the play is a true story about Arnold Wesker's auntie Sarah. Um, ah. So there you go. Yes, the not famous Sarah Wesker, who wasn't a playwright, but was a trade union political activist and campaigner back in the 20s and 30s. And she led the singing strikers of 1928. So that's one of the things that that we're doing with the show is we've resurrected some of the original strike songs that she sang on the picket line. So hopefully everyone's going to be joining in and joining the protest and joining the revolution (laughs) with us. Absolutely. So this is quite (laughs) extraordinary. 1928. And she was a union striker. How on earth did that come about? Well, she realised that... She, there was no female representation, basically. Um, and the female workers were being paid far less than the men workers for doing the same things. So, <laughs> so, so many resonances. <laughs> I know, I know. I tell you, nothing changes except the names. <laughs> <laughs> but she um, decided to, to lead a strike, um, not on her own, but um, she was very prominent in, in the strike. And it was in the garment factories of the East End of London. Um, and there was no union that would accept women, so she set up one of her own. Amazing. Um, which was quite exciting. And and something else that we, we cover in the show is that this all happened, 1928, exactly 40 years after the Match Girl strike, ah. um, which is also in the East End, that set up the union movement as we know it today. Yeah. And exactly 40 years before, the Dagnum girls came out for the Made in Dagnum. Ah, so God, there's gosh. a nice resonance there yeah, as well, a little yeah. coincidence. The planets were aligned. So you're obviously telling her story. What kind of songs did she sing on the picket line then? Well, they were all um, new words to famous tunes ah. so that the girls could just pick them up easily. So there's uh, there's a couple of nursery rhymes in there. There's uh, John Brown's Body features quite a lot because that's the, the tune for Solidarity Forever. Um, and that was sung by the Match Girls and by the girls in 1928 and is still being sung today. So um, we, we, that's, that repeats itself quite a lot. Um, and there's also a nice little bit of 19, I think it's 1930s, 1940s silliness, Sister Susie's sewing shirts for soldiers. Oh, I know that one. Yes, yes. In the morning. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we're doing a couple of bits and pieces like that as well. And th- there's lots of, as well as the, the songs, there's lots of nice music underscore um, that James, my lovely pianist, is playing. And that's all music that 
um, is relevant to the story, but is from the time as well. So it's a bit like a name that tune, really, when you come out, see what you spotted. So I love this kind of thing, because uh, I always think of this around International Women's Day, when you find out about extraordinary women in history who you never really learnt about at school. Um, so this is great that you're sort of taking sort of forgotten figures or historical figures and making a story out of them. Um, what kind of age group do you think this is aimed at, this show? Well, it's uh, I think that it's quite interesting actually I'm sounding very hesitant because I want to say oh everyone should see it and I know I'm not allowed to say that because that's the worst marketing trick in the book um but it it does have a particular resonance with people who have stories um of the, the tough times in the 1970s or who might have had grandparents great-grandparents who were involved in the national strike um, and all, all the upheavals in the, the between the war years. It also features, I mean, Sarah was uh, a refugee from the Ukraine. So there's yet another modern day reference there. Yes. And she fought at the Battle of Cable Street. Oh. So, you know, anyone with any interest in that part of history or with even some modern day politics um, is going to be interested. And we, we did the show at the Edinburgh Fringe last year. And I was surprised by the amount of, A, people who came up and said, my mum had a factory like that, or my dad used to be in that union. We had lots of union members who came to see it, which was lovely. But we also had a lot of young people. Um, And some of them were students. And most of them, I'd say, were just interested in the subject matter because it meant something to them. People are There was lots of striking happening, lots of um, industrial unrest last year. It hasn't really gone away this year, and I don't think it's ever going to. So it's it's a universal, perpetual theme, really. I think it's so important, these kind of things that have resonances. And I think uh, theatre, the arts is so important if you look at uh, Mr Bates and the post office and how it's taken Absolutely. it's taken the arts to really get the public swell of opinion behind it and I think it's the same with Dagenham and all of these stories as well so it is mm. really important to tell these stories um when is the show on it's on on Friday the 2nd of February and we kick off at 7 30 Okay, and how do people get tickets? Is it uh, just to go to phoenixarts.co.uk? It is, phoenixarts.co.uk, and uh, anyone who's coming gets a badge, and the badge says, the world is changed by the women you push too far. So... Oh, I like it. I like something, it. Something for us to, to wear in public. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Lottie. Thank you so much. And that was Lottie Walker from the Blue Fire Theatre Company bringing a show to Borden at the beginning of February. We'll now hear from Susan Beckett from City Eye and she was interviewed by Shine Radio's Gareth Boys. Hello, I'm here with Susan. Would you like to introduce yourself briefly? Hi, I'm Susan Beckett. I'm director of City Eye, which runs the City Eye Film Network. And would you like to briefly explain what the Film Network is? Uh, Yes, so we meet monthly, the second Tuesday each month in the evening, 7 to 9pm. And uh, the network exists to give uh, people working in film and media and digital arts more generally the opportunity to come together, to meet, to talk, 
to inspire each other, to form partnerships and build teams to, with a view to kind of developing production in this region. And how often does the film networking take place? So we, the second Tuesday of each month, we've been going for nearly two years now. City Eye has been offering networking for nearly, well, over 35 years one way or another. But this, this particular iteration has been going for a couple of years. And we have a, a, a group of, you know, I think it's about 80 people who come from time to time. And some yeah. come every month and some occasionally. And if people would like to find out more and come along, where can they find more information? So all the information is on our social media site, City Eye Media, or you can look at our website, which is City Eye. So at city-eye.co.uk, you can sign up there. Um, you can join our mailing list. You can just keep an eye on everything that's happening. Networking is just one of a number of different initiatives to support and develop filmmakers and film projects. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. And that was Gareth Boys talking to Susan Beckett from the City Eye Film Network. Gareth's next guest is Dr Roy Honey from DV Mission. And here he is telling Gareth exactly what that is. Hello, and I'm here with Roy Honey. In a few words, would you just like to briefly summarise what DV Mission is and what it means to you? So, DV Mission was once called It's the Sex Pistols Meets the Oscars. And I think that probably sums it up, really. It's a sort of bit of a DIY filmmaking challenge where we set, a, set some obstructions and say to filmmakers, you've got to make a film in 48 hours, a two-minute film. We give them a genre, line of dialogue, and a title, and they have to make that film. And then we screen the film, and we have one of the most amazing rap parties that you could imagine and give out awards and have a big party. How long has DV Mission been going? The DV Mission has been running uh, for 19 years now. Uh, so next year we'll be 20. And I'm hoping someone else will, will come along and go, Roy, why don't you retire and uh, someone else can do this? Um, but what we've seen in the 20 years or the 19 years that we've been running, we've, we've actually created a filmmaking dynasty in the area. There was one team that started uh, making films maybe 15 years ago, must be longer now, and they were a real party team. They'd get all their mates together, have a big party, make their film. They'd be the noisiest, craziest team at, at the awards night. And then slowly, when they had children, you started to see their children starting to be in the films, and then the children got a bit older, and then last year, their children entered their own team. So now DV Mission has created a filmmaking dynasty. Why do you think it sort of draws so many people back each year? It's sort of something that so many filmmakers love and the community around it. I think people will say the reason that they do it is because it's that they know when it is and it's that one day in the year where they can just switch off and just focus on doing something creative. People do it for different reasons. People do it for fun. People do it for portfolio, skills building. But basically, the reason they come back is because it's kind of addictive. It really puts you in, a, in the moment. It's, it's a kind of a race. And my job is to stop them making the film by giving them really hard obstructions like a genre or a line of uh, dialogue that they find difficult. And their job is to be as creative as possible. And then there's that bonding that happens at the gala night 
where all of these people come together, there's 300 people, all these filmmakers and creatives from around the region are all in a room together having a party and there's a real sense of camaraderie, community and, and identity that comes out of that. Well, thank you so much. And I look forward to starting TV Mission in March. Great. Are you taking part? Yes, I've entered a team already. You're registered. Brilliant. What's your team name? Cut to the Chase crew. Right. Okay, great. Well, I should look forward to seeing your film. Thank you. And I look forward to seeing Gareth's film as well. That was Gareth Boys talking to Dr. Roy Honey from the DV Mission. You're listening to The Ticket on Petersfield's Shine Radio. And The Ticket is where we celebrate everything creative that's going on in the local area. So if you are involved in anything to do with music or dance or theatre or crafts of any kind, I would love to have a chat with you. Do get in touch by emailing team at shineradio.uk or you can call or WhatsApp 01730 We'd love to hear from you. Now, our final guest is Douglas Ray, who is the film producer on The Great Escaper. And here he is talking to Shine Radio's Noni Needs. I'm Noni Needs. This is Petersfield Shine Radio. And today, the sun is shining. It's a gorgeous autumn day. And I am with Douglas Ray. Douglas Ray is the producer and director of The Great Escaper. And we're going to be talking all about that, the Petworth Festival and general Hampshire things. Hello, Douglas. Good morning. It's such a it's such a pleasure to meet you. Very nice Lovely to meet you. Part too. of the world here. I think we're very lucky because within an hour, just over an hour from London, you've got some of the most unspoilt countryside in the country, um, and also you've got some of the finest galleries, theatres, and food houses. Any anywhere specific? Well, within. Twenty minutes of here, I can go to the Hungry Guest in Petworth. I can go to the Cowdery Farm shop. I can go to Sky Farm, which is about a mile away from me. Have you tried their venison? I have tried their venison, and the knack of venison is how, how long you leave it to rest. So you cook it very hot to begin with, for maybe five minutes, and then you let it rest for about fifteen. And also the art venues right round here. Tell me, which are your favourites? There are just so many. We're just so lucky, aren't we? Yeah, I think we are incredible. I mean, not, not only do we have some of the best food around, but um, and, and the fishmonger comes up two or three times a week to various spots around here. Uh, do you from, like your fish? From Portsmouth, yeah. 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 But, you know, we've got... I'm on the board of the Petworth um, Literary Festival and Music Festival. The Music Festival's been going for 40 years, the Literary Festival for 10 but it's punching way above its weight. We get some of the top international authors and musicians coming. So tell me about some of the ones that you've interviewed recently. Uh, Tim Peake, the astronaut. Oh, that must be so much fun. A man from another world. <laughs> but actually, he lives, he lives near me. He lives uh, in, in Hampshire? He lives, no, he lives in West Sussex. Oh, West Sussex. Uh, but he's a delightful guy and um, he's very natural and... Uh, he did a spacewalk where he stood outside the spacecraft, the International Space Station. I was travelling at 17,000 miles an hour, but because of gravity, there's no sense of movement. See, that just, is, that just must mess with your head, really, because you're just stationary, but you're going so fast. And you've no understanding of movement. You just feel you're floating. So how does he get back to the spacecraft? Are they connected now? Or yeah, did... uh, well... When they first started doing spacewalks, they had an umbilical cord 
that took the oxygen and the water and everything they needed. Uh, now they've got a little space pack on the back, like James Bond, a jet pack, but you only have 20 seconds power to get back to the opening of the space station. And if you run out of time, I'm afraid you're, you're then orbiting the Earth in, in eternity. They're very brave, all these people that go up into space. They are. They're remarkable. But things that scare you usually turn out to be worth doing. So there is somebody that I came across recently that said, challenging your comfort zone is where the magic happens. Do you believe that? Yeah, well, my job really is a magician. I make films, which are stories. That's the simple answer. But you need the alchemy of magic, of excitement. You need to make people laugh and cry in the same film. Now, you certainly do that in The Great Escaper. I went to see it at the Living Room Cinema, which is in Lip Hook, which is a fabulous cinema. And the audience laugh out loud at the great escape, in The Great Escape, and tears, I'm sorry, it just tugs at your heartstrings. Well, I think the film avoids being sentimental. About two people are both about 90, Michael Caine and Glenda Jackson. And it would have been so easy to, to do a film that was, oh, isn't that nice, you know, two old people doing things that are remarkable. But actually, it's, it's, it's a tough film to watch because it's about a love story. It's about um, the futility of war. Uh, and even given that Michael's playing Bernie, who's 90 years old... Yeah, let's talk about the plot. A little bit, let's give a little outline about the plot. Well, 2014, um, a man in a care home in Kent went to the matron. He was in the care home with his wife and said, I want to go to the D-Day landings because it's the 70th anniversary and the yeah. Queen's there and Obama. And it's my last opportunity to go. Because he is 89 at, at, yeah. or 90 at this stage. Mm. And the matron said, sorry, you're, you're too frail and there's nobody to go with you. So he spoke to his wife and she said, just go. And she said, if you've got an itch, you've got to scratch it. And so he climbed out the window <laughs> and got on a bus. Climbed to, out the window at 90? To Dover and got to France. And what he, what he really wanted to do wasn't so much to go to the pomp and circumstance of the occasion where he had VIP tickets because he was something of a celebrity by then, you know, with the Queen there and the President and everything. He wanted to go to the cemetery because all his friends that he went over to France with when he was 18 are in the cemetery. He wanted to go and say goodbye to them. Pay his respects. And there's a wonderful scene where he turns around in the cemetery and said, what a waste, what a waste, you know. It resonates so strongly. The state of the world at the moment, mm. I think that's what really tore into me. You're sitting there and we d just seem to have learned nothing. And you kind of agree with him, but you know why people fight and it's such an honourable thing to do because they don't have a choice. I mean, what do you do? Well, war never seems to resolve very much. <clears throat> and in Ukraine, you've got the stalemate at the moment that could go on for years yeah. unless Putin dies then God knows who takes over from him. You would think, when you look back at Hitler uh, and Mussolini and people who just were absolute dictators, you know, we still have them. And maybe it's not a one person, but it's Hamas, and, you know, um, and it's, it's organisations that um, believe in evil or certainly medieval torture and evil to, to get what they want. So everybody is looking for a story. In your capacity as a professional producer-director, what inspired you to think, ah, oh, this could turn into a good story, or how can I make a film? I mean, how do you even start thinking about things like that? 
What was it that triggered it for you? I think it was a film about something. It wasn't Mission Impossible 35 or James Bond, another James Bond, and does he get the girl? And This is about a man who had reached 90, near the end of his life, who was still in love with his wife in the care home together and thought, I can do this. You know, it's extraordinary that the human spirit, if they set their mind to it, can go and do things. And he wasn't going out there to be glorified as some old man who had become heroic. He was there because he wanted to say goodbye to his friends. And how did you come across this? It was in every paper the next day after the police discovered that he'd gone missing. (laughs) 90-year-old escaped care home. It was just the great escaper. (laughs) It was on the news. It was the first item on the news. And this is all before Major Tom, you know. The challenge for us as filmmakers, where do you find two 90-year-old actors? You Uh, were so lucky. Well, Michael Caine, uh, who plays Bernie, uh, was only 82 in 2014. So what did you have to say about that? I'm far too young to play this old 90-year-old man. Have you ever had that before? Yeah, sometimes you get actors who are rather vain and say, no, I can't possibly play a grandfather because I'm only 68. <laughs> Fair enough, but there are plenty of grandfathers that are younger than 68. Of course. Yeah. And when we made the film with Judy Dench as Queen Victoria... That's uh, Mrs Brown. Mrs Brown with Billy Connolly. I mean, she actually was in her mid-60s, I think. So it kind of suited the period that Queen Victoria, who'd had nine children, was widowed when Albert left her, and she went into mourning. And Disraeli, the then Prime Minister, was very worried that the country was going towards becoming a republic because the monarch had not been seen for three years. So getting Judi Dench to play the Queen... I mean, it was there was nobody else I wanted just as I only wanted Michael Caine to play Bernie. And and the only Glenda Jackson could play his wife. Exactly. She's so lovely. And they'd done a film together 50 years before. Wow. So was this the the second film they'd done together? Yeah. (gasps) And they hadn't seen each other for 50 years. Really? Yeah. And (laughs) Glenda walks into the rehearsal room and says, gosh, you haven't changed, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) You're still as handsome as ever. No, it was a magical film to make because you had two actors, both with two Oscars each. And some other stuff. Yeah, lots of other stuff. The secret of great acting is you don't see people acting. When an actor is trying too hard, you think, gosh, you know, that's not real. You know? I mean, I've been in scenes where Judy Dench had nothing to say because someone was talking to her, but the face is what does the acting, the eyes and the face. And actually, Michael said that the secret to his acting... Oh, yeah, tell me this story, because I, I love Michael Caine's stories. He said, the reason people have noticed me as an actor is I never blink. OK, so how does he not blink? Well, he looks, he concentrates OK. and trains his eyes not to blink. You're so, not blinking right now. I know, He's I'm trying to... He's not blinking right, <laughs> staring me out. And as you don't blink, your eyes open which makes you look more interesting, as if you're going to either kiss somebody or punch them or be dramatic. Ah, he's just blinked. (laughs) I'm not Michael Caine. (laughs) My name is Michael Caine. (laughs) There's a funny story about that, because Michael said that's the most famous catchphrase around. Yeah. And he said, I never said it. It was Dudley Moore, the little comedian. Oh, when he was Um, imitating. He used to go, I'm 
Hello, my name is Michael Caine. <laughs> so he, he created that? Yeah. Oh, fabulous. So you need somebody to go, my name is Douglas Ray. With a Scottish accent. Oh, yeah. I, I can't do a Scottish <laughs> accent. I'm not even going to try. That would be a disaster. And how did you get Glenda Jackson involved? Well, Glenda had left the Labour Party, as you know, after 30 years as a politician. And she did King Lear when she came out which is a huge part, you know, hell of a lot of speeches. But then she also did a, a, a film about somebody getting Alzheimer's and, and disappearing uh, and won the BAFTA. So having been in, out of acting for 30 years, she suddenly does King Lear and wins the BAFTA for a television drama. And she was the only actress around who was sort of late 80s. And perfect, because she'd worked with Michael before, so there was a kind of shorthand there. So tell me about where it was shot. Well, we didn't go to France. No, why not? They don't like us. Too much red tape. (laughs) It's all this Brexit thing. Brexit hasn't worked Uh, for the film industry. It was so bureaucratic. We had to get visas for a crew of 150, and it was a nightmare. So we went to Camber Sands in Kent and bought lots of French flags. (laughs) <laughs> and put French flags all round Rye and Hastings and, and people were walking by saying, Bonjour! <laughs> and how has the film been received? Because it's still playing at cinemas. Yeah, now, it's it? the highest grossing British film this year. Which is, is it? That's congratulations! Um, the box office has taken over five million, which for a tiny film and is remarkable. Yeah. And um, it's still still on. Um, it's amazing how British producers manage to make things for very little, but they punch above their weight. I mean, a lot of the Oscars have been won by small British films um, in, in recent times. It, it, just, it did make me laugh out loud and cry. It's just so moving. Love well, it. when you think of Shakespeare... He does as well. He does as well, and, you know, he's all right. <laughs> he's all right. It's, and it's so lovely, the fact that you've got... It's quite a small, intimate cl- cast, and it's very naughty. I love the fact that Michael Caine's character is quite mischievous, despite the fact he's 90. Well, when we did Mrs Brown, of course, Judy Dench has got She's this She's so mischievous. And so we had Judy Dench and Billy Connolly and a horse that passed wind all the time. That was pretty amazing, trying to do very serious scenes between Judy and Billy and the horse. And the smelly horse. <laughs> the smelly horse was very noisy. <laughs> so you could edit the noise out, but... Well... <laughs> or, or maybe not. It was a lovely film. Tell me about that. What was it like making that? Well, it was our first film, so we didn't really know what we were doing. And how long ago was that? Yeah. That was in 98, I think. Wow. Last century. It doesn't feel it does not feel like it was that long well, ago. Well, it's on television all the time. I mean, it's such a it's timeless. I mean, we've made twenty films now, and what is funny is you look through the Christmas schedule, and, and you Brown. see no, you see one of your films oh, somewhere. One of my favourites is Becoming Jane. And... Just coming back to the Maggie Smith story of Becoming Jane, there's the scene where Julie Walters, who plays. Jane Austen's mother, has invited the lady of the manor to come and have some tea. It's terribly snobbish because she's the the great lady who lives at the big house up the road. Jane Austen is sitting there, played by Anne Hathaway. She's scribbling away all the time. And when um, 
when Maggie Smith's character says something quite interesting, she, she writes it down. And Maggie Smith looks over to the young girl and thinks, why, she, why isn't she doing embroidery? Or, you know, and said, what's your daughter doing to Julie Walters? And she says, um, she's writing, Mum. Maggie Smith says, can anything be done about it? <laughs> like she has some affliction. Wasn't, it wasn't considered what women do. No. Which is why we've got all these great authors that go by male names in that generation. Yeah. We take risks with our casting in our films. Okay. And um, we got a lot of flack for choosing Anne Hathaway. Why? Because she was American. Why? There must be great English actors. There are great English actresses, but when we, when, we, when we do our casting sessions, you know, we went for the best actress for the role. Who, what are the factors that influence who you cast at any given moment? Well, if you're doing a love story, there has to be an alchemy. So you do, you bring in James McAvoy and the actresses that you think might be able to play against him as Jane Austen to see what they respond. And, of course, if they don't like each other, you know. When I did uh, the film with Sebastian Folkes, Charlotte Grey, Kate Blanchett was chosen as the girl to play Charlotte Grey and we needed um, an actor to play a Frenchman so that when she parachuted into France to help the resistance, they would speak English, because we didn't want subtitles, but they'd speak English, but with a French accent. And one of the actors we had in was this pretty good actor who'd done a few television series called Daniel Craig. I don't know whatever happened to Whatever happened to, happened to Daniel Craig? And Daniel, who's from Newcastle, couldn't, couldn't get the French accent. It sounded like, hello, hello. <laughs> <laughs> That's no good, you don't want to comment. And so we went for a New York actor called Billy Crudux. When Kate Blanchett arrives in the, the parachute and she's picked up by this handsome young guy from the Resistance, you know, he could speak English, but he sounded French, whereas Daniel didn't. And I met Daniel some years later. Yeah, did he say thank you? <laughs> yes, yes, he said thank you because I got bond instead. <laughs> That's an amazing story. What other ones of your films do you want to tell me about, please? Well, the film I enjoyed, two films I really loved making was Brideshead Revisited. Yes. Which I'd watched as a boy at school. Yeah. And, of course, then there was no recordings. Ten million people watched Brideshead on a Sunday night. I, I remember an Aloysius the Bear, and I just couldn't decide between Anthony Andrews and Jeremy Irons. Well, you we, fell in love with both of them. We had Ben Wishaw and Matthew Good. An even harder choice. Yeah. So, so it was a favourite novel of mine, and you know it's about class and it's about somebody who flies too close to the sun, which is what Charles Ryder does. Because in the aristocracy, you think you're friends of theirs, but actually you're an outsider. And so it was an intriguing story. And, and also, you know, it's like Shakespeare. People are interpreting the plays in different ways. And I thought there's no harm in doing Brideshead again, but doing it as a film. I was going to say rudely, but have you ever had that experience where you think you're friends with people and they're not? Well, I had... At Charlotte Grey, we did it for the Prince's Trust and I had to look after Prince Charles that night. Oh. And, you know, he... It's quite hard, because he speaks at the back of his throat and like that. That's a very good impersonation for a Scotsman. (laughs) 
And uh, so you've got to lip read because... Oh, he doesn't move his lips very doesn't well. He speaks in the back of the throat. And uh, it's a jolly nice film. Anyway, I'm introducing him to all the cast. And, uh, and he's, he's joking with me. You know, he's saying funny things. And he sat beside me during the film. And we raised about 100000 or something. Oh, well so at the end of the film, he said, it's such a good film. I said, um, is there anything I can do for you? And I thought, well, quite like a knighthood appearance. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, sir, I'd love, to, I'd love to go and see your garden at Highgrove. There's a three-year waiting list to get in. Three years? He said, three years. I can get in whenever I like. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, because you're joking in things, you think... There's a familiarity I mean, you can't say, well, Charles. No. (laughs) But but you know that... There's a line. There's a line you can't cross, yeah. So did you ever get into Highgrove? I did go to Highgrove, and I took my wife and her parents, which was fantastic, because there really was a three-year waiting list. It's a funny thing working with famous people because you do feel you're becoming very friendly with them. You're tolerated by them, but you don't become one of them. Do you ever get starstruck, or have you ever been starstruck? I mean, over the years? Or does it change with age? Do people get starstruck with you? No. Because no. you're a producer, director, no, they don't no. know who you are. Oh, God, so, no. no I, I'm... Sorry, I didn't mean to insult you there. No, no, I'm very, I'm very discreet. Um, my children, when I, I took them on set all the time, because they were interested in... Yeah. And people... Have any, have any of them, have any of them followed you? My middle son has become a director, and my elder son has become a producer. Um, although not in television, he's more in events. But they're, they're both quite entrepreneurial. Fortunately, my daughter's done something very sensible. Um, she become a lawyer. <laughs> no, she's, she's working in wealth management. When you're on a film... You should be invisible as a producer. You shouldn't be wandering around screaming at people and trying to do their own work. I learnt quite early on the art of delegation. So you choose good people. So I choose the heads of department. There are about 14 departments on a film, including catering and everything else. And then they choose their teams. So it's like a pyramid with me at the top taking the flak if it goes wrong, (laughs) rather than taking the accolades if it goes right. So many things can go wrong with a film. You know, the weather, the actors fall out. It's amazing that films are ever made. It's the art of the impossible. You're a magician with the art of the impossible. You're a magician, you're an alchemist, you're a lawyer, you're a banker. You're in HR, you have yeah. to soothe everybody's yeah. furrowed brows. And um, I, like, I like going on the set and just being very quiet. <laughs> it's quite often some of the runners who are, the, the, you know, the lowest of the low, and, and they're there to look Watch after... Watch out, because they might become the highest of the high. Well, line. exactly. And I started as an office boy in the newspaper, so I know, I know what it was like to start at the bottom. It's the best way to learn. This young man came up to me and said, uh, do you have permission to be here? <laughs> <laughs> I said... I do, actually. <laughs> he said, well, what do you do? <laughs> and what did you answer? And I didn't, I didn't want to humiliate him by saying, well, actually, I run the bloody... I'm your boss. I said, I signed the checks. He said, oh, right. Yeah. I didn't want... I mean, because it would be embarrassing for him to... Oh, bless. But that's brave for him to challenge people. Well, which he thought shouldn't be there. But Yeah, but you look at... You know, this guy was 18, 19 or something. You think, good, good for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
And we, we, we make a point of bringing in trainees and work experience people for everything we do. So with that, what's the name of your film company, just in case anybody wants to apply? Ecos Films, <laughs> which, which is French for Scotland. Is it? Mm, Ecos. Ecos, of course it is. Well, you've got all bases covered. Now, I would like to talk about Maggie's, which is a charity locally. Can you tell me about that? Well, Maggie's started 25 years ago as a cancer care uh, charity, and I was involved, I've been involved in it for 20 years, and I do lots of premieres and things for them, and I'm an ambassador for Maggie's. Um, and I organised a Christmas carol service. How did you get involved? I was producing a series called Monarch of the Glen in the Highlands, and we were staying in a, a, a beautiful estate, and the owner of the estate had very bad cancer. I said, how do, how do you manage with your treatment, you know, the chemo and radiotherapy? She said, oh, I go to Maggie's. I said, for the treatment? She said, no, no, to recuperate. And Maggie's is a place where if you've got cancer and you've been told by your consultant, you get 10 minutes with him and he tells you what's going to happen. And then you walk on, out on the street. I've just been told I'm going to die. That's what you think. And Maggie's centres are all attached to the big cancer hospitals so you walk through the door it's like a big farmhouse kitchen and nobody says who are you have you made an appointment it's free there's no waiting list and you get to talk to specialists in whatever cancer you've got because they'll come over from the hospital but it's not in the hospital environment you're sitting have a cup of tea and other people around there have got cancer and we've seen a million patients in 25 years but because we've now got 25 centers four abroad now tokyo hong kong barcelona and there's going to be three more the whole point is it gives you the courage and the impetus to tackle the disease you're not on your own you've got the support there so we give you advice about wigs diet you know um, yoga or anything that can help you to tackle the disease and you can come in with your children your husband and they, everybody can explain exactly what's going to happen. So the nearest one in Hampshire is the one you've opened in Southampton? We've just opened one in Southampton. Each one costs £5 million, and we raise the money locally. Maggie's gets not a penny from the National Health Service or anything from the government, so we have to raise £25 million a year. For just one hospital? No, no, for the whole... For the whole lot? Yeah. So if people want to help, where can they find information? Just Google well, Maggie's? If you go onto Maggie's website, it, it shows you the range of centres we've got all over the country. The one in Southampton is, is a brilliant one. It was designed by Amanda Levite, who did the extension for the um, Victorian Albert Museum in, 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 in London. But the whole point about Maggie's is the building doesn't look like a hospital. It's beautifully designed, and there's a garden, garden with water, statues, artwork in the, the Maggie centres, and brilliantly trained staff who look after you. So you walk through the door, and as I said, nobody says, who are you, have you made an appointment? It's free. Um, and unlike the National Health Service, there's no waiting list. So you get a cup of tea and a biscuit? Get a cup of tea and biscuit, and... I guarantee you leave there feeling much more confident and inspired about the treatment you're going to get. Because these days, um, cancer does not equal death. There is incurable cancer, but you can be treated and people live. Well, survival rates now are over 70%. Yes. So getting cancer now is not a death warrant. When Maggie Keswick, who it's named after, 
I had breast cancer 30 years ago, it was pretty much a terminal because they didn't have the treatment or the research. And she said when she knew she was dying to her husband, who was an architect, when I die, I, I would like you to talk to all your architecture friends. And he knew all the world's top architects to design a building that people can go to when they've got cancer. So we've got centres designed by Frank Geary, you know, Richard Rogers, Zaha Hadid, you know. Beautiful buildings. Beautiful buildings that you walk into them and it's a haven. You know, it just makes you feel different from being in the hospital where you're told that's it, you've got cancer. And it's, it's, it's fear and um, of the unknown that we're well. removing the fear of, um, of cancer. It must take a lot to raise £25 million every year. Well, each centre has a committee and they have links with all the local newspapers or radio stations uh, to raise the money. People are very generous. There's legacies. There's lots of major donors. And there are some people, like a businessman, whose wife has been at Maggie's and nobody knows that she's the wife of a famous businessman, will ring up and say, how much is a Maggie centre? As happened recently, um, we said it's five million. He said, right, I'll, I'll buy one. I find it very therapeutic because making films is, you know, it's intense and you're working with great people like writers and directors and cameramen, but it's so nice to do something very different. And down here, I'm, I've joined the board of the Petworth Literary and Music Festival. I've joined the board of the Grange Festival Opera Company. Two, two of my passions, you know, literature and opera, and to be within half an hour of both. Is, well, it's just very lucky. Mm. So is there anything else to say about Petworth um, Literary Festival? We do, a spring, we do a spring event, and sometimes we use the Midhurst Grammar School. Um, so we're trying to spread out from Petworth to incorporate Midhurst as well. It's a big population in Midhurst. Basically, we track which books are coming out this time next year because you want to get a book coming out in October just before the festival starts again. Publishers now ring us up and oh, say... Great. Whereas it used to be Edinburgh or Hay on Wye or, you know, all Cheltenham, all the big literary festivals. Now they're thinking, oh, Petworth, it's an hour away. You can go down and come back in the same night. So we get... People like Sebastian Folks and Andrew Roberts and really top, top writers. We tend not to decide who's coming until the spring because you're waiting to see which books are coming out. But at the music festival, we get a lot of top musicians coming down from London for the same reason that they can, they can go back afterwards. But we've got great venues and we get about 10,000 people through in the course of the, the music festival which is a lot. Now, I think, we, I think we've, we've run out of time. I think we need to finish, but we can't finish. We've got to say something more about The Great Escaper. Well, when you think of it, it's the last of a generation that you'll never see the like of again. You know, the, the men who fought in the Second World War will not be around much longer. So, you know, um, Michael, equally, is the last of a generation of great actors because Sean Connery's gone, Roger Moore. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. famous actors who've gone... So this is an opportunity to see um, an actor at the height of his power uh, playing a soldier who was from a generation that are dying out. Well, I think movies should be about something rather than just entertainment. Um, and that's the kind of films I like making. I mean, I made a film about the young John Lennon at 15 
because he was an angry schoolboy. I love John Lennon. Um, his mother had abandoned him at, at five, and he was looked after by his aunt Mimi in Liverpool, played by Kristen Scott Thomas. So I missed play. that one. So what's the name of the movie and when did it come out? It's called Nowhere Boy, about ten years ago, directed by Sam Taylor Wood. Okay, well, I'm going to be watching that one. So what's next for you, Douglas? Um, I want to do a drama set in the International Space Station with Tim Peake as one of our consultants because up there you've got Russians, Chinese, English, French, all floating around the Earth for, and living together. That's amazing. Why yeah. can't we do it down here? Um, and I'm talking with... Um, do you know Adam Kay? The, no, um, tell me about Adam Kay. Adam Kay wrote the series called This Is Going To Hurt with Ben Wishaw. It's set in a maternity ward. You can imagine how tough that is. Yes, there was a book. Yeah, it sold three million copies. Adam's also written a book called Tis the Last Night Shift Before Christmas in the style of Dickens-esque, you know, and it's about what is it like to, to spend Christmas in the wards on Christmas Eve where everybody outside is whooping and having parties. People are dying, you know, uh, and there's chaos going on. Well, thank you very much for taking the time for talking to me today and the best of luck with The Great Escaper because it's a fabulous film. Thank you, Douglas. Thank you very much. That was Douglas Ray talking to me about The Great Escaper and many, many more things about Hampshire and how lovely it is. And that was Noni Needs talking to Douglas Ray, the film producer of The Great Escaper, amongst others. And what a fascinating interview that was. Thank you to all of my guests, to Gareth Boys and Noni Needs from Shine Radio, to Douglas Ray, to Lottie Walker, to Susan Beckett and to Dr. Roy Hanney. Thank you very much for listening. This is The Ticket here on Shine Radio, which is where we celebrate everything creative that's going on in the area. Until next time. by volunteers in Petersfield. This is Shine Radio. I just like being in a little family. Um, I love the community spirit. I like coming out to events like this. This is my first event with Shine. I'm honing in on my editing skills right now. I've been allowed free reign of the controls this weekend. And yeah, I'm just learning loads of new skills, being able to broadcast, interview. It's really good. Petersfield's Shine Radio. You make it shine. Call Petersfield 555 500 or email team at shineradio.uk.